Well, you guys, uh, you guys ready for this? <laughs> it is. Uh, it's a pleasure to have this opportunity. I'm, I'm excited about what we're going to uh, to study and look at uh, today. So let's uh, let's begin our study with a word of prayer. <clears throat> our Father, we're extremely thankful for the beautiful things that you do for us every day. We thank you for this rain that is so badly needed. We see this as the great blessings that you constantly give us that are especially in the spiritual realm. We thank you for always providing for us and especially providing for our salvation. Help us in our study today. Please always forgive us of our sins and keep us close to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, what I want to uh, talk about today is is some things that are uh, often taken for granted uh, for us. And, you know, you read something like the title of the lesson here, of, of Baptism, why? Why would we, why would God command this? And, and the first thought is, well... This will be one of those uh, real simple basic lessons that doesn't apply to me if I've already been baptized. But I want to suggest to you a couple of things. Uh, First and foremost, uh, think about what it was like to be a Jew on the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts. And uh, Peter, of course, uh, explains the miraculous event that takes place. Uh, the speaking in tongues, uh, the rush, the sound of the rushing mighty wind, the tongues like fire on top of the apostles, and everybody's running together to see what's up. And Peter begins his sermon by saying, uh, "This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the latter days that the Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh." And then he goes on and begins his sermon. And uh, his sermon centers around the idea that if you want to be saved from the destruction that Joel prophesied, you're going to have to call on the name of the Lord. And obviously to these Jews, they don't know who the Lord is. Uh, Well, they would think they did. They would think the Lord is just the God, the Father, and would not recognize the uh, emphasis on the Messiah. So most of Peter's sermon then keys off of the fact that Jesus is now the Lord. In fact, he ends his sermon with, let all the house of Israel know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. And of course, you know the story of how their response was, men and brethren, what shall we do? I would just think that for a Jew, it would be absolutely shocking for Peter to simply say, Repent and be baptized. Repent and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, wouldn't you just think that as a, as a Jew, you would just be going, what are you talking about? Get dunked in water? What's that have to do with anything? And, and, and we have taken that and taught that for years as if it is just the most natural and normal thing And yet, we find that most of our friends in the religious world find it just about as shocking as maybe we would have thought those, it would have been shocking to those Jews. What in the world is the idea of getting underwater have to do with salvation? 
we don't see Old Testament people getting dunked in water for salvation. We see them offering sacrifices. So what would this have to do with anything? And I believe that is where we have missed the boat when it comes to teaching folks about the idea of salvation in Christ. We have tended to think that the New Testament story of the gospel message is so different than the Old Testament that we just have have kind of -of matter-of-factly spent our time saying, well, here's what you have to do to be saved without any connection to what was going on in the Old Testament. Well, obviously, you know that in Acts 2, no one seemed to be surprised by that command. Isn't that something? As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist burst on the scene and started telling everybody to come out to the Jordan River and be baptized, we see the same response. We don't see a bunch of people going, is that guy a kook or what? Uh, we, We don't see them responding like Nahum and the leper. Well, I wish I could, if I had to do anything, why doesn't he just wave his hand over the spot? We don't see any of that. In fact, we see thousands upon thousands of people trekking out to the Jordan River and being baptized by John. And then, of course, in Acts 2, we see the same kind of thing as 3,000 people are baptized. So the the shock that we ought to have is that it wasn't a shock to them. that <laughs> They had to be baptized. Uh, this, is, this isn't some kind of command that was so new and different that they would have been uh, surprised by the command. And in fact, wait a minute, Peter, would you please explain why in the world you're telling us to let you dunk us underwater in order to be saved? That just doesn't make sense to us. Why don't, why don't you explain that first? In fact, Peter doesn't seem to explain anything about that. And the whole gospel message just goes on for a number of years to Jews alone. And no one seems to be shocked by the command. So I think it's important for us to figure out why. Uh, first and foremost, of course, this is a Jewish audience. And because it's a Jewish audience, we see that they were not surprised and therefore there were things they should have known and did know prior to the time that Peter made this command. So let's take a look at some of these things. And I want to begin with just the foundation in the Old Testament for the type that is given or the significance that God places on water. All right, so let's begin with just a simple text in Genesis chapter 2. And most of us know, of course, this part of the story, but it's, it seems to be the part of the story that we tend to read over rather rapidly and act like that there's not much significance to it, and yet there is. In Genesis chapter 2 and beginning at verse 10, Moses wrote for us, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So he pretty well covers the whole known world there of these four rivers that come out. But notice something. A river flowed out of the garden. 
and it parts into four rivers which water the face of the earth. Eden is a picture of... I'm going to start knocking things around here. That'll be interesting. Yeah! All right. It begins. It was broken before. It was broken before. Of course it was. That crazy son of mine. Can I blame him? He's not here. Uh... Anyway, okay, how, how about, just let it be. yeah, just let it be, we'll just put it there and let her go, I just want to find where that, that piece went so I don't step on it, <laughs> okay, all right, all right, so anyway, the, the interesting thing here is the fact that this river flows out of Eden, out, of, out from the dwelling place of God, out from where God has provided the nourishment for uh, Adam and Eve and this whole garden. So uh, that, that's significant because here is God's blessings. And when you think of a river, you think of God's blessings. Just like here... Huh. Everything got shut off, huh? Okay, get this thing right. What? All right. <laughs> Next. <laughs> so, <laughs> every everything everything then in 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 life is centered around water. And just like Brent was telling me, we got down here that we got a pretty good drought going here, and you're all glad for this rain. Uh, we need water. And so God signifies his nourishment, not only of Eden, but also of the whole land and the whole world by having these rivers, this river flow out of Eden, parting into four rivers and going on. When you compare that then to the New Testament, just go to the very end of the Bible and you see a similar picture given in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Here we're told, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. See a similarity there? Eden, the dwelling place of God. Now here is this river flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. The tree of life was 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so you see this, this picture of God again in the heavenly realm showing a similar thing like we saw back in Eden and water and the river of water being very significant then to, uh, to God's life that he is giving. We can look at other examples of this like in Acts chapter 2 and verse 16 as we just mentioned. When Peter starts his sermon, he refers to the pouring out of the Spirit. Again, something we read over sometimes very rapidly, and yet that is a metaphor, pouring out is a metaphor for the for life-giving that comes from the Spirit and pictured in a water-type metaphor. And so when God is using this, He's emphasizing again His giving of life. Again, when Israel goes into the, is ready to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 7, The scripture says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and the hills. 
And so God, again, picturing water as something that was a great blessing to the land and a something that gave life then to the land. In Psalm 105 and verse 41, as he went through the wilderness, uh, the psalmist that said, suggests the same thing. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Jesus is pictured as this rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 who provides that same living water then for us and yet in this case a spiritual water. So I'm just trying to show you how God has used water all the way through the Bible to make this emphasis. Even in the prophecies about the days of the Messiah you see a similar thing. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8 and 9. When he talks about on that day, most of you understand he's talking about the days of the Messiah. And he says on that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter and the Lord will be king over all the earth. So when the Messiah came, what was going to happen? Well, there's going to be pouring out of water that's going to go through the whole land and whole earth and it's going to give life to the world. And that's exactly what Jesus, of course, has done. But he uses it in the picture of water flowing out. Again, over in the book of Ezekiel, and this one uh, we're going to turn and read because it's somewhat lengthy, but I want you to see the picture here in Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, excuse me, 47. Ezekiel chapter 47. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 47 is a picture of the new temple of the Messiah. So, Uh, If we were reading through Ezekiel, we would get to chapter 40 and he would begin describing the new temple that was going to come in the days of the Messiah. Of course, this is a a figurative looking temple. It's It's not a physical temple, but a spiritual temple. But as he talks about that temple in Isaiah 47, we see, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel 47, we see Ezekiel getting a vision of what happens at this temple. So notice with me. Ezekiel 47.1, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east of the temple, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water. And it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Alright, so we see this, of course, visionary picture, and now the angel is going to explain it to him. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river many, very many trees on one side and on the other. That sound familiar? We just read that in Revelation, borrowing that picture of life. Verse 8, and he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. This sea, by the way, is the Dead Sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. 
And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. All right, and so the vision goes on. But notice what, what happens. Water flows out again from God. It flows out from the temple. And when the water flows out from the temple, it first is a trickle, then builds and builds until it's flowing over the whole land and even turns the Dead Sea fresh. And fish grow in the Dead Sea and trees are all along the river and the whole land begins to flourish and come to life. So you see God's water picture in the Old Testament and water flowing out of the temple. And of course we could follow that line of thought for a while because today the Messiah the Messiah's temple is us and water the living water that Jesus gave us is now flowing out of us so that the world gets life so we again could talk about that picture a lot but still you see God emphasizing this idea of water and water is what brings life if you go back to to Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, you'll see this water picture given there as the Lord talks about how He would change people in the days of the Messiah. Ezekiel 36, and beginning at verse 19, God talks about what the nations, the nation of Israel had done when they went among the nations, they profaned His name. So verse 20, he says, I scattered them among the, verse 19, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So here God is saying, my name has been profaned. Now we know from the New Testament in Ephesians that everything God has done in Christ is for the praise of His glory, to praise His holy name. In this case, Israel had failed that purpose and their God's name had been profaned among them. So God's going to change that. In verse 22, Therefore, thus, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I always thought that was interesting. That God said, I'm not going to just throw you away and make a new nation. I'm going to actually, through you, vindicate my name. Now at this point, we begin to realize he's not just talking about the physical nation of Israel. He's talking about us. We are the ones who have also profaned his name. And we are the ones he's going to change in order so that his name is going to be vindicated. So let's see how he does it. Then beginning in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what is, what is God going to do in order to vindicate His name? Well, first He has to cleanse us. How's He going to cleanse us? I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. The water picture again, isn't it? And secondly, I'm going to put my spirit in you. And when I put my spirit in you, it's going to do something to you. It's going to cause you to change. It's going to cause you to have a new heart. You're not going to have that stubborn stony heart that you had you're going to have a fleshly pliable heart you're going to be willing to change and then not only that it's going to cause you to be careful to obey my rules and my statutes so you see this whole change that's going to take place now you and i recognize that because when we get to the new testament in john 3 you remember when jesus is talking to nicodemus and nicodemus is all amazed that Jesus is uh, uh, is this great guy came from God because he does all these miracles. And then Jesus surprises Nicodemus by saying, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is questioning this, and Jesus repeats, except a person is born of water and the Spirit, he can in no way enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is still confused. And in verse 10, Jesus turns around and says, Nicodemus, you're a rabbi in Israel and you don't understand this? What's the matter with you? Now, why would Jesus expect John, uh, expect Nicodemus to understand a water spirit figure? Because it was given back in Ezekiel chapter 36. Because it was plainly there and he should have understood what it meant to be cleansed. And he should have understood primarily that he couldn't do it himself. Because God in Ezekiel said, I will do this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will put my spirit in you. And when I put my spirit in you, I will cause you to be this different person than you were before. So I'm going to do these things. That was not understood by Nicodemus, that it had that salvation had to be generated from God, but is generated in the picture of water. God sprinkling sprinkling clean water on you and the giving of the Spirit, which would change them and change their heart. Uh, I've been... um, I wrote an article on this recently and and, uh, half of the professors at Florida College, I think, had a little uh, cow about it (laughs) because I said the water in John 3 is not specifically referring to baptism. It's, it's referring to this passage. Now, obviously, rebirth takes place at baptism. We know that from Romans 6. But in the context, Nicodemus is not going to be thinking about John's baptism or somebody's baptism. He's going to be thinking, because Jesus said, you should have known this. This is from the Old Testament. This is from that. And so the idea would be that you have this, uh, this picture of God sprinkling clean water on you. God has to do this. And that is the idea uh, that we need to get out of the text. But anyway, you see through this, this whole idea of a water picture. And when the water comes, God uses the water as a means uh, to cleanse. Now let's, let's go from there and go over then and get our water metaphor, metaphor pictured then better in the New Testament. And we'll go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and, uh, and notice beginning at verse 19. 
This is such a great, uh, a great picture uh, because of the, again, Old Testament story connection that is made here. So in Hebrews 10, notice beginning in verse 19, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now here again, this, this, this picture is interesting because it comes out, of course, the picture of the Old Testament. I'm sure most all of you know that the very idea of walking into uh, the tabernacle or the temple and just right into that holy place, just like you own the joint, and uh, walking right on through that veil and into the, into the most holy place in the presence of God is not exactly what could happen. Remember the king who tried that one? <laughs> Uzziah decided he could offer incense and walked into the holy place and, and leprosy burst out upon him and he lived as a leper the rest of his life. God through Leviticus, of course, is teaching that you and I or anyone cannot just walk into the presence of God without being cleansed. That cleansing has to take place. We have to be made holy. And God is the only one that can make us holy. We cannot be holy by ourselves. And so here is the picture of God making us holy, of cleansing us, of doing what is necessary so that... In this text, he says, we can now with confidence, or other versions say, with boldness, enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And in that particular case, he's not just talking about the holy place, the first part of the tabernacle or temple. He's talking about even the most holy place that you and I now actually dwell in that presence. I don't know how many of you have ever thought about it that way, but you and I live our lives inside the most holy place. We live our lives in the very presence of God. And that then requires us to make sure that if we're going to walk in through that veil, which now is pictured as Jesus, but if we're going to walk in that veil, we had better be holy. We had better be cleansed. And we better maintain that cleansing if we expect to be remaining in the presence of God and not uh, and not condemned by him. So the point of the Hebrew writer's text here is look what we have, look what he's opened for us, and since he's opened for us, look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What gives us the full assurance? Well, there's two things in the text that gives us that full assurance. He says, hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water. He has the the cleansing picture of what takes place in the heart or the conscience combined with the bodies washed with pure water. Now again, the Hebrew, the Jews, the Hebrew Christians would have understood that analogy quite well. And so there's that combination. Heart sprinkled clean would go back to Exodus chapter 24 and verse 6. Now, I don't know uh, 
if you remember that scene, but it's a very, very uh, poignant scene as Moses is sealing the covenant, the law of Moses with the people, and he's connecting them to that covenant. Now, what do you, what do, you do to set aside a covenant? Well, blood has to take place. So they offer an animal. He pours out part of the blood at the, at the uh, uh, foot of the altar. He, he splashes blood on the side of the altar. And then he tells the people to come by. I, 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 I think it's such a cruel picture to think of, of uh, two to three million people. And maybe the children didn't walk by. I don't know. But all these people walking by and Moses dipping hyssop into that blood. And as they came by, him going, and just splattering that blood. And the blood hitting them and their garments and uh, uh, sanctifying them for the service to God and connecting them with the covenant. A little bit later, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And when we do, we're remembering that it wasn't the blood of an animal that was sprinkled on us. It was the blood of the Son of God that was sprinkled on us and not on us physically and not on our garments, but on our hearts. And so everything began with this picture of blood sprinkled on our hearts, cleansing us, and then bodies washed with pure water. And you see that connection, again, from the Old Testament, both in the Levitical picture. In Ezekiel, he talked about it from the Spirit doing it. Spirit and water. And Exodus, it's blood and water. I'm going to suggest to you there's no difference. The Spirit is the one who does the work of bringing the salvation of Christ, and he's spoken of that way in Romans 5. But for our purposes here, what we notice then is this this Spirit, uh, the work of the Spirit through the death of Christ, blood sprinkled on the hearts, bodies washed then with pure water, and you have the whole Levitical picture. Before they could enter the holy place, that had to that had to take place. In verse 22, he also refers to us being our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. One of the beautiful things that we have that they did not have is no more remembrance of sins. Our consciences now are cleansed, not just our bodies. And so you see that that picture that is given through there. Notice just a couple other connections before we uh, end. Look back at Hebrews chapter 9. And look at the parallel that he gives there. Hebrews 9 and beginning at verse 13. The writer says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So you notice again, him using the figure here, the figure of speech or the typology that is used here to refer to if the blood of those goats and bulls sprinkled on human beings there purified the flesh, How much more the blood of Christ that's given by the eternal spirit. You see the connection of the spirit with the blood. And that is connected and he says how much more that is going to cleanse your conscience. 
You know, there's a there's a challenge that all of us have as Christians. Teresa and I were talking about it a bit yesterday. On one hand, we we do not want to have an arrogance of, well, I'm saved. So, you know, sin doesn't matter. And, and don't have to worry about it too much. Uh, you know, th- this kind of uh, arrogant, overly confident type of thing where I'm allowing that to, I'm not appreciating it, so I'm not careful to obey. And you remember back in Ezekiel, what did he say? He said, when I, when I sprinkle clean water on you and I put my spirit in you, it's going to cause you to be careful to obey. Why would that cause us to be careful to obey? Because it's the deep appreciation we have for what he's done. We don't take advantage of that. We don't tempt the Lord our God. We don't do as Paul warned in Romans 6. Shall we sin that grace may abound? No, instead, we're dead to that. So all of the fact that when he cleansed us, we realized how much we hated that previous life. It caused us to love him. It's caused us to be sensitive in our conscience, to be careful to not violate the covenant that he has so graciously given us. And everything we do then emanates out of that deep love we have for him because he did show us mercy for those sins and it caused us to hate those sins. In fact, later in chapter 36 of Ezekiel and down in verse 32, he says, and when I do all this, you will loathe yourselves for your sins and your iniquities. So that's a, that's a good test for us, isn't it? Do I live my life loathing sin and loathing myself when I do sin and not just taking it like, oh, well, you know, I, I'm under grace as so many have, have seen to do. So you see this picture of the cleansing of the evil conscience. On the other hand, down in chapter 10 uh, and verse 2, and we'll talk about this more in the next, uh, next lesson. But down in chapter 10 and verse 1, as he, as he uh, uh, verse 2, he says, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, talking about the sacrifices, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. One of the things the Lord wants for us is to understand our cleansing so thoroughly that we don't walk around the rest of our lives uh, constantly thinking about, woe is me, I, I just can't imagine I'm going to be saved because of the sins I've committed in the past. Instead, he says that cleansing is going to make it so you have no more consciousness of sin. But there's that balance, isn't there? It's that I'm not going to continue to remember the sins of the past because God doesn't remember them and God has cleansed me of them. On the other hand, I have also have an appreciation because of that. I have an appreciation for what he's done and I am careful with my future life and I'm careful and I'm humble and I'm obedient and I'm repentant and I have an attitude before the throne that I'm dependent upon the mercy of God. And so there's that... There's that balance that goes on there then at all times. Um, let's, let's look at one other uh, passage then. And, uh, and that would be in, in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 20 and 21. We're going to refer to this a couple of times uh, today. But I want, to, I want you to look at it from uh, uh, one point of view now. And we'll look at it from a different point of view then in our, in our next lesson. For 1 Peter 3 and verse 20, uh, 
you'll remember the parallel that Peter makes between the salvation of Noah, in which he says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. ESV says safely through water. The versions say saved by water. So uh, first and foremost, we see that, that God is using the water picture again that he used all the way back with Noah, a salvation picture that happens through water and then turns around and says, that is the same thing for us. We are saved in the same way that they were saved. We are then saved through water. And so then verse 21, he goes on to say, baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to Noah being saved by water, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay, we just noticed back in Hebrews 9, the cleansing of the conscience. And so now, when I am baptized in water, the baptism itself is through that water appealing to God for a good and clean conscience. Just like we read back in Ezekiel 36 that God was intending to sprinkle clean water on us, figure of speech, in order to cleanse us. And so we are saved just like that as we appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there'd be a whole other subject in which we would show the parallel between the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection uh, to life. All right, look, look also at Titus chapter 3. I thought I had the last verse. It's not quite the last verse. Look at, also at Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 through 7. And I want you to notice again this water metaphor that is used here to talk about our cleansing. Titus 3 and beginning at verse 4, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, This picture is so similar to what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, you're going to have to be born of water and the Spirit. Rebirth is going to take place through these two pictures of God cleansing you, sprinkling clean water on you, and the work that He's going to do when He puts His Spirit in you and changes you. This is, this is how God's going to do this. And then Paul pretty well repeats that same thing when he says He saved us not by works done and by us in righteousness. Hey, Nicodemus, what are you thinking about when you're thinking about your own salvation? You're thinking about works of works of righteousness which you have done. That's the way a Jew would have thought. He would have thought in terms of, well, I'm circumcised, and uh, and I go to temple, and I don't eat pigs, and uh, and and so that's good, and and I and I uh, and I don't touch those Gentiles, and so he's he's got a little list here that are his works of righteousness which he has done, and Jesus said no, it's something that's going to, you're going to, your rebirth is going to have to happen 
from God. And that's just what he says here. So it's done then by his mercy. And then he uses the water metaphor. Washing of regeneration. Renew of the Holy Spirit. And notice the words. Whom he poured out on us richly. So there's that pouring out again. As he gives them that beautiful water metaphor. Even in Ephesians 5.26. Christ cleansed the church with the washing of water by the word. So when we come to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And Peter tells them brothers what shall we do? And Peter said repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They would not have been surprised to see the combination of an immersion in water and the giving of the Spirit in order to truly change them, cleanse them, and make them children of God. And fulfill the promise for the last part of this statement in verse 39. For the promise, and they would have understood that connection. The promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God uh, calls to himself. So, we have a world full of people who, who think they can walk into the presence of God just by saying, well, you know, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. And yet, we see from the Old Testament to the New, it is impossible to walk into the presence of God with God unless God has cleansed you. And that cleansing takes place between a combination of a blood water blood spirit metaphor as he then does the work to pour out on us. We can see from this too that baptism is not our work. This is actually a work of God that we submit to and he cleanses us and when we're cleansed then we're able to walk boldly before God into the throne and into the most holy place and dwell there and not be worried about whether or not God is going to destroy us. So if baptism basically has nothing to do with salvation, what we have done was we have ruined God's whole Old Testament picture. If we just take baptism out and say it has nothing to do with salvation and everything, all you got to do is just believe, you've ruined the entire Old Testament picture. You've taken away all of the water metaphors. You've taken away everything God had planned and structured that would be brought about in Christ to whom the end of the, to us to whom the ends of the ages have come. We are saved in a in a real sense in the way it had been typed up and pictured in the Old Testament. And if we take that away, we have ruined God's whole plan. You cannot study the gospel message of salvation without seeing it in the story of Israel. And if you separate it from the story of Israel, you've missed the point. All right. I think that's about time. And Brent would be absolutely amazed. One minute early. Okay? (laughs) Thank you for your attention.